You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm Tom Shamba, and this is the War Dogs Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Bob Mays. He served from May of 1968 to May of 1969 in the 35th Security Police Squadron K-9 Division at Phan Rang, Vietnam. Good morning, Bob. I hope you're having a great day. So let's get started. Tell me uh, how you got involved in the K-9 unit. That was right after I was in basic. And uh, they came up looking, you know, they didn't use the word volunteers. They just said, you know, how many of you like, you know, dogs? And of course, me being a hunter and everything, and where I came up, Virginia, my dad and us always hunted. Of course, I raised my hand, and I was the only one that raised their hand. But uh, so next thing I know, you know, I was I was getting enrolled. I had a couple of assignments prior to that, and um, before I really got my other orders to go overseas. But it turned out real good, and I'm glad I did. It was a, a good group of guys. I think you and I are similar in that sense. I I got into sentry dogs much like you did. I, I was raised with a German Shepherd from the time I was about five years old. And uh, right after I got in, they were looking for volunteers for the sentry dog program. and. I raised my hand. I said, yeah, I want to do that. And, and uh, of course, that followed with orders to go to Vietnam. But uh, I couldn't have picked a better career if I tried. So uh, very similar in, in that sense. You're one of the few people I know who got in early on and went through that whole career. I went through my military career and then law enforcement careers, same as handling a dog. So it was really kind of a great time for me. So if you would just like your article or, or your piece that you put in Facebook, if you'd reiterate that, I would appreciate it. All right. Well, I guess it all started 1966, basic training. And we was just about completing, I believe it was, what is it? Eight weeks, 12, whatever the period of time was. Um, a basic training we had this old sergeant came in we was all sitting around and he started talking about you know different opportunities to where you could go and what you could do and everything and then he made the comment he said uh how many of you in here really like being with dogs and i raised my hand uh, and you know everybody else was raising for mechanics and this, that, and everything else. And, but anyway, when he brought that out, I raised my hand. Well, that was my volunteering to um, go into K-9. And I'd already been processed at the time to go to Wyoming because um, we was, it was with the security forces. But then after I got in Wyoming, I received orders to return back to Lackland uh, to go through enrolling K-9 school. So that really started the um, my role. And of course, 
after I finished canine school, I went back, going back into Wyoming and um, there at Cheyenne. And it was a, like a month later, I got orders cut to go to Vietnam. So that's, uh, that's the way I, I took off and went to there. And from there, I went to the Philippines and Philippines and came home. What, where were you at in Vietnam? I was at Fan Rang. And from six, 68 to 69. So you came in after I left. I left uh, in 68. Uh, yeah. I was there at uh, May of 68 and until, yeah, it was May of uh, 69 when I left. When I was, was the Tet Offensive attack that we talk, everybody talks about? That was, uh, well, they talk about several. Um, I think the latter part of 68, um, if I remember right, I mean, you know, because we, we had harassments all the time. Seemed like after about two or three months, I was there. But I think the latter part of 68, Craig would know exactly. I had the different dates. Uh, Craig had given them to me at one time and I still got them here in a folder, but it's, um, I think that was the time when they actually, uh, penetrated the fence. And I think it was down in the Kegelow section. I might have to look at the paperwork to jog my memory, but they actually, um, penetrated the fence line at that point and, uh, got in on post. And, um, and of course, it was it was hitting all around. It was all primary Juliet, Cuba area, and, and different areas like that where they was they had a better shot at the uh, runway to go in and throw satchels and what have And they also went in uh, further towards a command center. So um, they, it was pretty much running around where they want to at that time. Once they got in, it was. You know, they was already detailed everywhere they were going and what they were going to hit, and they knew where it was and had directions, and they uh, they came in that way. Uh, but once they made, you know, the canine alerted on the first on the first initial assault before the uh, mortars and everything rocket started, and they had already sent out a SAT team at that time to start you know, the firepower um, behind the K-9 unit. I think it was Thomas Caputo. Uh, he got hit on that initial charge. And uh, he was, you know, he got, he got wounded. But he, uh, and I think it was Dragic and them that came up with the, you know, quick response team uh, to start doing a backup. And then, of course, they had pulled all the other dog units that was off that night go straight to the kennels and uh, pick up the dogs and and head to you know the various sections but we had um which i know if i was to say this i would have gotten some of my literature out you know what dragage had sent me uh and you know the you know the different attacks that uh that had taken place but during that period it kind of slowed down 
in May of 69 or just, you know, the beginning of it and a little bit at towards the end of April, it really started slowing down somewhat. And then I heard that they had picked up again just right after that. Were you in any direct uh, uh, combat situations where you were? Uh, I was, yeah. Unfortunately, our, they nicknamed me Mortar Magnet. Because it seemed like wherever I was at, uh, mortars walked through. And Dragage had sent me one letter because uh, they was like looking for me. And I think it was either 17 or 21 rounds came right through where I was at and hit on their quick response team as they was coming in, hit right there at the Jeep. But um, he said they was like looking for me, the Australians and them, they was always look, they was looking for me because I had no communications at the time. And he said, finally, I can walk it out of this cloud of smoke. And of course, you know, Atlas, he couldn't hear. This was towards the end of April, I believe it was. And, um, and Atlas, he couldn't hear. He had blood running out of his ears. He, his eardrums got busted. But I didn't have that much time left in service over there. I requested to go ahead and continue using Atlas. I had less than 30 days left in the country. Uh, continued using him. And then, uh, of course, when I left, they sent him back to the States, at least he made it home. And from there, uh, they let him lay around the kennels and take a little brief R&R. &R. And, and they uh, sent him on off, you know, and had him euthanized, which I've got to paperwork on that that they had sent me for the euthanization. Well, didn't, didn't that uh, impact his ability to uh, pick up any sound? I mean, it... yeah, he, he couldn't hear, but he could still see and he could still uh, smell. But he, uh, that was about it. And uh, we just, we just went on. Granted, he couldn't smell, but he could, you know, he could still see and he could still uh see everybody or any, any kind of movement and you uh, know it was just it was just a great companion and i knew that it would take me you know figure a week or two to get back in on a dog that was already trained so i just said well, you know i would know the dog even after i got in on it of what his actions are and how he alerted but at least with atlas i knew his actions i knew his alerts his visual alerts, uh, his hearing alerts, which he wouldn't have anymore. And also, you know, anything that he could smell, you know, how he tilted his head and he would look up and follow it around. At least he had two, two good, strong alerts still working for him. And, you know, it just, uh, I felt comfortable with that versus taking on a new dog for a short duration. Yeah, uh, Bill Fisher mentioned that his dog also lost his hearing, but it was earlier on, and he went, uh, he actually left, got another dog and came back, but like you said, it took some time. Yeah, and that's the only part that, you know, I just didn't want, you know, then the dog would get to know me, and then I'd be leaving the dog all of a sudden again, so with the time I had left in country, uh, I felt the dog was still worthy of working with me and I was with him, uh, even though he could not hear. Do you think as far apart as we were in Fan Rang, that 
that was a concern that people could come in between us? Sure, they could. Um, and even if, you know, if you walk the post diligently like you were supposed to, um, the dog would really would see the other person too and throw a false alert. But the thing of it is, that was a lot of distance in between the handlers. If both of you met at the same point, had a brief conversation, and then took off walking, um, you left a big hole. And, you know, unless the wind was blowing perfect, the dog would never pick up a scent. You know, I felt like, and I know they didn't have any more, uh, they were short as it was, but to me, it should have been something else in between um, where they would have had to scale, got over some kind of barrier to allow an area to be non-penetratable, but all we had was a barbed wire fence and depended upon the dogs because we certainly couldn't see, we couldn't smell. And unless they got it there and beat a cane or something, we wouldn't hear nothing. They had already escaped the route or found because initially in the report, they felt like one of the VC that they had captured was either VC or NBA. I'd have to reread the report. Um, they thought the dogs were dumb and didn't know nothing. So they didn't really try to make any penetration attempts to just to see what was there, or they had made penetration attempts just to go in so far and come back just to see how they could react to make a comment like that, that they thought that the dogs were stupid and dumb. So it kind of leads me to believe that they had made several attempts prior to that, but had just got caught on particular ones because they had, they had the opportunity to get in and they didn't go far, but at least they got into where they wanted to go, maybe on a perimeter road or somewhere, and then work their way back again. But I've got all of the dates, posted dates of hits, um, ammunition, everything else that I'd be glad to send to you. Uh, I just have to locate it and I'll make a copy and send it to you. But it's, uh, it, it was it was quite a few. And, you know, like I said, a lot of it was just harassment. I've got one picture here, picture up here where you can see it. All right, as you know, this is the flight bag and which you carry. Yeah. And then of course, the dog, you know, his muzzle and the wolf shovel and everything, which we was already, he'd already been, had his muzzle off and we had just gotten on post and I set the bag down. And you can see right here above the muzzle, three holes. Uh, that was incoming fired. You can see where they hit the muzzle and also hit the edge of the shovel. And this was, this was, this was taken by the air force. They, they, they took the pictures of this. So, um, do you remember what post that was on? Wish I could remember. I know it was just out from the village, um, down at the strip. Oh, straight out from there. Yeah. Um, because you know, the dog had alerted. And as soon as Atlas alerted, uh, they, 
they fired off. And this was done on April of 69, April the 16th. That's why I say, you know, they kind of slowed up towards the end of April and going into part of that May, uh, things kind of calmed down a little bit. But this was uh, done on April the 16th, 1969. And, you know, they, you can see where they actually hit there some bigger holes and then the rounds just went right into the bag, which I had just, the dog alerted just as I set that bag down. And all of a sudden that was pulled on a chain and went out and started agitating. And I turned around because I was been over at the time, putting the bag on the ground. And when I stood up and I turned around, um he was wanting to go and by that time you know they clicked all three three rounds that hit right there and um of course it was other fire and then the tower they called it in because i was just right there near not out front of the tower but off to the right of it and they called it in having incoming fire and then they contacted me to confirm anything and i said yes and uh so then they, the tower opened up in the same area and just started spraying all down through a fence line and going out. That was just another night. And like I say, I, you know, mortars had a way of finding me when they would walk. And they were very good at that too, walking mortar around. I can, uh, they, they, they took on a kennel one night and I happened to be out in front of the kennel and they just walked them right on through there just as pretty as you want to see. And you could really know which way you needed to be because of the way they walked them and you, you learned real quick. So they, uh, but they, they hit the kennel then, but it's, uh, we, you know, I think as, as far as major attacks, it was either two or three major real hard, uh, attacks. We, of course we had the battleship New Jersey fire and support of us one night. And, um, uh, that was the ship was actually heading back to be uh, mothballed, and he heard a call and, and he just got a coordinates and told her, you know, and they, would, they came over the radio, I was telling us to dig in in that particular area. But it was funny because Atlas could hear the shells coming overhead from the New Jersey, and he'd be looking up the sky, and his head would follow them all the way in until they made an impact over into the mountain range area. But, uh, I was just glad that that ship was on our side. <laughs> but they, they, they had like 20 or 22 chew hoys that night where they, they surrendered. Um, they came up to the gates and then they actually surrendered after that thing had made a fire. So I guess they were ganging up, uh, getting ready to do something because they had the mortars and everything else going on and rockets. And uh, when the battleship New Jersey fired, uh, it kind of calmed that team down. Well, that was but kind of a dangerous area because you had the creek right there running through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they had a good. It was. It, it it was. I think that probably the the safest place, which it don't, I never heard of much going on, was down towards Marblelocket Gate. I think that was probably the calmest area. Um, I never heard of too many alerts or anything that actually happened in that area coming through. But as far as over towards the airstrip and down there near where you like you would be going out, you know, down through the town, that area, I believe that was a Delta area. 
those, those areas and coming back around towards the canine compound, coming all the way around that way. Uh, were, were pretty um, active areas for them to, to blend into. Yeah, it was, um, it was sad. I, I don't know if you remember about uh, Joel Loftus. Um, he was a handler that he was sitting in front um, after they built nice barracks. Was, <laughs> and he was sitting in front of there writing a letter home. And uh, Michelle hit, Mordet Brown hit right in that area and took him out. But he was he was found still sitting in the, his chair outside the barracks. And, um, you know, just, it just internally from the shocking is what, you know, what killed him. But uh, that's the way he was found. Wow. You know, I think one interesting thing that uh, people don't quite understand about what we trained on is the three different ways our dogs would alert. But besides that, it was kind of like golfing. When you got out to post, you had to figure out which way the wind was coming from to see if your dog was going to be effective uh, with his nose or if you had to rely on his sight and his sound. For example, no moon, reduce the sight, wind coming out of the, from your back, reduce the ability to pick up a scent unless you're out on the fence line and he was already penetrated. So you almost had to rely on sound. Uh, were those experiences that, that you went out on post every night and, and measured and thought about, or was it you just showed up on post and started walking? When I would first go out, we'd go out and pack hairs. And we actually met at our, our break point where the posts were divided. And then we, he would go his way and I would go my way and then come back and I would make a sweep of the area. But during that sweep, which was real slow, uh, you look for what just what you were talking about. Personally, I didn't like a full moon night um, because if I could see them, they could see me. So I usually stayed back just a little bit from a fence line for that reason, uh, within my perimeters and parameters of doing so. But I always wanted to check the wind to see which way it was blowing and which way I would be more effective in working. You know, if I would, and cause no one coming back the other way, if the wind was coming safe on my back, the wind was no good to me. So I had to rely on sight and hearing. And so there I, I walked in a manner that I could visually see and also try to help him hear. But I relied on the hearing part a whole lot and, um, and his sniffing. And my eyes were really checked with the dog. I didn't look so much as far as me looking because it was dark, you couldn't see nothing anyway. But I relied personally on my dog that I would watch him pick up any scent as that he would be picking up that I wouldn't smell, but I could tell by his actions. In other words, you know, like the old saying was intelligence ran up the leash. So I relied on him to train me on what he was doing and what they, what the alerts were. And that's what I, I 
teamed myself with. I mean, we were partners, but for me, he had the upper hand. I was just a dummy holding the leash. Yeah, I mean, just like you said, but them good enough. Atlas would give a real, he never barked. He would give a real low throaty growl. And it, this was an old big dog too, but he would give it just where you could actually feel the trembling coming up through the leash. And, um, you know, that's, that was his, that was his human alert. If it was an animal or something like that, you know, he would kind of prance with his front paws and, you know, more of us saying, oh, this one's, this one's not bad, but, um, that's, that was a difference between his animal alerts and a human alert, but with a human, it would be a real throaty growl. And, um, when the owls where anybody could hear it other than I could feel it and I could feel the vibrations in the leash. And he was, uh, he was an outstanding, outstanding dog. How about snake alerts? Oh, snakes. He would look at them. He would just stop and look. And, uh, and same way with the scorpion. If he saw one, although I did get hit with the scorpion one night, putting down some water for him in my helmet. And, uh, and I hauled off and hit him. I said, you know, you dumb ass, you're supposed to let me know it was there. But uh, he, uh, it was mostly snakes and, uh, of course, the scorpion. It, he would just stop and look. And I had a picture around here one time where we was taking a break and I was eating sea rations. All of a sudden, he did look off to the side and just stand there, was looking down at the ground. And uh, so I knew it was either a snake or a scorpion, but I just got through getting my, my chow fixed together and uh, for what it was worth I was gonna sit there and eat it <laughs> yeah they uh I know they cooked the deer over there one time I wasn't part of it it was it was my job to, to get the beer not the food so it uh they, they did cook one of those little scrawny things but <laughs> wasn't much there to look at not like the deer I've been used to seeing oh not much of a deer at all yeah, I saw a Bengal tiger one night. There was a scout troop came in, army group, and they were carrying him. He was probably 14 foot long, tail to nose, and he was probably six, 700 pounds. And they all were carrying him in on a stick. He was, I was just curious if he had a sister or brother that was out there that I needed to be concerned about, but <laughs> I, didn't see, revenge. <laughs> I didn't see him. You don't lose too much thought about you. You know, you, you bury some of it and some of it gets lost with age. But uh, other than that, it's, you know, I can sit here and talk to you about it and, you know, others. We It's funny because <clears throat> I had to go through a counseling one time, PTSD. And it's, the doctor got up and said that, you know, it was a table, I guess, about 14, 15 guys sitting around it and he started talking and he said, well, I know y'all will have trouble talking to one another in this group. And I uh, went on explaining everything and I raised my hand. I said, doc, I said, uh, I see that you had no military experience. He said, well, no, I don't. I said, so you don't have any military experience. And then without that, I know you haven't had no combat experience. I said, but and I pointed my finger to all the guys who was in the room. I said, all of these men sitting here, I can talk to them. I said, we all have something in common. 
I says, but with you, we don't. I said, so you're the enemy. We can't talk with you. And uh, he gave me his card at the end of the three-day classes and told him if I ever needed help, give him a call. <laughs> but, you know, he, he couldn't really understand what we were saying. But, you know, I could say that when I talk to you, you can understand. I can see that on your face or someone else who has been there. You know, they, they understand. So you can kind of open up and talk with them. How long did you think you went before you went to the VA or, or talked about your PTSD? About, about 10 years, 12 years ago. Yeah, I just... Um, Matter of fact, it was around, let's see, I've been retired now for six, seven years. Yeah, about 10 years is about right. Um, and it was really my primary care physician at the time uh, requested that I go through a class. It wasn't something that I just went in on a PTSD or anything else. She requested and, and got it set up for me that she felt that I needed to go through it. And she was, I'm sure she was probably right. But uh, anyway, um, I went through that class. That was three sessions. And then I ended up having to go through another one. And uh, about a year or so ago, they wanted me to come in and, and do another evaluation. Where's that? And they said, you know, they said, you, yeah, you had it. You got it. Um, nothing I can do about it. It was just mental, mentally in there. So I knew I had problems like you. I took the, well, I went to beer and I went to the bottle and I, you know, a little bit of everything to try to ease it. You know, we talked about full moons. Um, even today, I can't sleep on a full moon night. I'm very on edge. So, uh, it, it takes an effect on you. You don't realize these things, I think, until time goes by. And then you start wondering, well, why am I doing this? You know, what, what is creating my anger or short fuse and everything else? And, um, you know, you start thinking about it. Then you just think of, you know, back then it was just, it was just part of me just moving on. But, um, you start wondering yourself. And I think the classes, uh, they had one in particular, especially this last one, where they divided it up into parts of a wheel and showing you different parts of PTSD. And when you start looking at all of these different parts, and of course they go through them over the sessions, uh, it makes a lot of sense that knowing who you were before and who you are now. And with your son, uh, I wouldn't let it go too far because it took the toll on me through two marriages. Luckily, I, I'm married now uh, to a very wonderful woman who understands and we've been married for a long time. But uh, I know the first two was mostly me and, you know, just the way I was. So, but you don't see that then, but you see it now. And... I went down the same path, Tom. I'd, I'd go in a bar and I'd start having a couple beers. And then I'd look at somebody that just didn't look right to me. And I'd start a fight. You know, it's, uh, it's just, I guess it was an aggression there. I wasn't aware of it. And it just comes out. 
So we just, you know, and like I say, you know, you, you can, I would hope that he would get advice quick. Thank you, Bob, for your time today. And thank you, the audience, for listening to War Dogs Podcast.